Then we jerked her around about it for about three or four months, and I still had two years and a half years on my capital contract because I had a five-year deal, and I was going to be the next president, you know. And uh, I said, screw it, and I said to I said to Michael, let's do it. And then and then that lawyer who we both knew said, these guys had an ad. We never read that ad. Yeah, they, was this an ad in the New York Times? It was... We never read it. Yeah. The way we got to Joel and John is this lawyer said, there's these two guys. One is filthy rich. He gets $2 million every three months. You wow. know, they, own, they own Pico Pay. They own, you know, they own Broxident. You know, they own all these, these big pharmaceuticals. They have a big pharmaceutical company, and, and they're, they're billionaires. And, and then the meeting was set for us to meet them. And, uh, you know, in their book, even though they hated me and Michael, huh. you know, you know, it finally at the at, you know the only time I got thanked because if if I didn't make that movie deal, you know, two days before, we wouldn't even be talking about Woodstock. Really? Yeah, and I had already made a record deal, which I reveal in the book, two months before that. So these money guys, this is Joel Rosenman, is that right? And John Robbins. And so John they Robbins. put up two hundred and fifty grand. Really? I put up most of the money because I ran that ad on my anniversary, May thirty first. Without my partner's permission, I just ran, I didn't need their permission. I ran the promotion. Yeah. And, you know, I decided to run an ad because I knew how much money we had left, and I knew we were broke. So what I did is I decided to put a coupon, and I hired away the ticket guy from the Fillmore. Yeah. Uh, what was his name? It was I think it was his name was Chip. Yeah. Uh, or Keith. His name was Keith, and he ran for ticket sales for Bill Graham. Mm. So we gave him an office in Woodstock Ventures where I was with Joel and John. Mm-hmm. You know, because Michael and I made a deal when it was formed. He says, Artie, you got to keep them off my back. I've never done this. Yeah. You know, and if they're watching over me, I'll never get it done. <laughs> yeah. You know, in reality, no one had ever done this. So, you know, so uh, for me, you know, taking Tracy Chapman to number one as the quarterback, taking a, a black folk singer and knocking ZZ Top out of number one on the rock charts was just as hard as doing Woodstock. No kidding. Taking Survivor, an unknown band from Chicago, to Eye of the Tiger. Yeah. That was hard work. That was eight months on the road doing Woodstock interviews and all kinds of stuff. So I already knew that radio was the key. Because what did I know? My friends are in radio. So I said, you know what, I'm going to use radio as my main source. So the public, you know, that word of mouth was very carefully orchestrated by my staff and myself. Right. Every word and every ad. I don't know if you're one of the guys, but what I do is I go to a program director, mm-hmm. and I'd say, here's what it's about. I'll give you interviews, okay? This is, this is, we're talking about now, this is three months before the festival. Right. I'll give you interviews. Uh, I said, and I, what I want to do is I'll pay you a hundred bucks. You produce a commercial because you know your market better than I do. Yeah. I said, you know, because you're going to have a different commercial in San Antonio than you're going to have in uh, Toronto. Of course. You're just going to have a different ad. I said, but you have to use my words exactly as I wrote them. You know, then the part has got a little uptight. And then I ran that ad, and the ad was only to find out whether hippies were going to pay for it. When I got, I sold 100,000 tickets and took it a million and a half dollars, and that was the money that's, that really kept Woodstock going. So one thing leads to another. It starts to snowball. You have the company, the money, the posters, uh, the staff. Oh, it, was always, it was always on the edge because Michael was going 600% over budget, and I wasn't. I was only 60% over, and the only reason that was is because when they lost... I had nothing to do with the Warkill site, nothing to do with it. When I found out that Michael was already building and we didn't have permits, I was flipped. Oh, you must have freaked out. Yeah. You know, and Joel and John wrote in one book where they totally bash, 
you know, they bashed. They said Nardi would disappear because we think he was on coke. What I was doing was traveling around, meeting with the Black Panthers, meeting with the Weathermen, meeting with SDS, yeah. you know, meeting with Abby Hoffman, and making sure I was diffusing any possible, you know, violence that I could. That I could. So that's what I was doing, giving free interviews. And then they got so into it, they started to give me free advertising. Yeah, because they realized how much this meant to FM radio, because FM radio was just starting to happen. When that first site uh, exploded, the city council booted you out of there. You had to find another place to... Uh, I wasn't there. You know what? I hardly knew about it. Really? Michael said to me in passing, because I was so busy with my staff at 12 doing my trip, Yeah. you know, Yeah. Uh, that... I had heard talk about Warkill, you know, but it was sort of like, let's leave Artie alone because he's a genius at promotion and he knows how to get to the people and yeah. take care of the rest. And everything they took care of, like getting a movie and record deal, they didn't do. You know, people yeah. don't know that I made a record deal with, with Jerry and Ahmed, you know, two months before Woodstock for one point just to make sure there'd be a record. And the film deal, this was done like, what, four, three days out? I was, you know, when I was at Mercury... Freddie Weintraubel on the bitter end mm-hmm. and an act called Leon Bibb from Canada. Okay, he came to me at Mercury and said, Artie, I knew him from going to the bitter end because I had access like the Spoonful, you know, played the bitter end. Yeah. You know? And the guy who wrote Follow for Richie Havens, Jerry Merrick had played there and I had Buzzy Linhardt and he had played there. Mm-hmm. So I knew Freddie, you know, and uh, he uh, came to me and I put up like, I did a, like a $70,000 album I knew it couldn't sell, but I did as a favor to Freddie because I had final control, mm-hmm. you know, of A&R, what was spent. Right. And Quincy Jones was my boss, but he was about to leave, so I was really running it. Yeah. So anyway, what happened was is uh, uh, I found out about Walker. Michael said, well, the big meeting is uh, tomorrow night. I said, what big meeting? He said, Walkill. I said, what do you mean, big meeting? Isn't everything straight? He said, well, no, Artie, we never really got, we never really got permission to build. And then we sort of did our giggle, and then went by, and then he called me that night at 11 o'clock, laughing. I said, what are you laughing at? He says, ah, just the way we operate, Artie, just figures our luck, they turned us down. So I said, you mean we just blew $200,000? <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know? I, I didn't even care about the money. And we laughed. We actually giggled. Joel and John were probably crying. Because all they cared about is that the family name be, be kept you know, yeah. pure. Intact, yeah. Yeah, they were from that rich group of of uh, very wealthy people that we don't know. Yeah. We don't hang out with. People like us <laughs> very rarely hang out with those people. Yeah. You know, I do now. It's only because of my name. Yeah, yeah. Only when I have to be somewhere. Because they're, they're part of the Woodstock Nation, too. You know, so... Uh, that was uh, Warkill, and you know, and uh, then we there we were with no sight. So I had to run my ads, and I really had to run great advertising and do great radio work because I had to prove that this thing that only had a couple of acts book was really going to happen, and I did. So how quickly did you find Max Yasker's oh, place? Oh, the story of the movie. Okay, now it's four days before the festival, and I read in the paper, Freddie Weintraub sells his interest in the bitter end, yeah. joins Warner Brothers as vice president of movies, and. I call him on Wednesday, and I say, Freddie, I'm on my way up to Woodstock, but I'd like to see you. He said, not about that movie. He said, now, this is when I found out that Joel and John behind my back, just because they hated the fact that I was known and they weren't, they try to make movie deals, and Warner's has already turned it down 12 times. But documentaries didn't sell in those days. Yeah. So 
what happened was I met with Freddie, and when I had the councils, Ted Ashley was my agent, and he was the chairman of the board. So I met with the two of them. We battled for 35 hours, and then we have that handwritten contract just signed by Freddie and I. And I flew wildly in, gave him a hundred grand to buy, and he had to sign a release that he would direct it for X amount. Yeah. And then I gave him a check to buy film, and he went back up to the site. And that was how the Woodstock movie happened. When you saw it, were you pleased with it? When I first saw it, I saw it with Linda and Michael on the floor at the View Lux East. It was the first week they were showing it in Manhattan. And uh, I, I laughed because the only time, Mike, it's funny. Everybody thought my, my job ended at Woodstock. No, it didn't. I had to talk everybody into being filmed without a contract and without the money that was supposed to be paid because we didn't even pay them for their performance. And the contract said, if you're getting $4,000, you're going to get an extra 2000 if we film you. So I had to talk every single act into saying, okay, film us. Wow. Signing a piece of paper. So I had to do that. And then I had to talk to each act that I thought could be trouble and tell them what was going on, Please, like Sly Stone and Peter Townsend. Please don't get crazy now because you could kill 10,000 people. Just with one wise remark. So that worked, you know. And then, you know, and then I got up there and I found out that Michael hadn't even made deals with the farmers in the surrounding area. So he says, he says, Crombine, because he always called me Crombine and I called him Clang because he clanged my head, you know. So I called him Clang. <laughs> He, every time he talked, it was a clang in my head, like, what's he setting me up for now? Clang. So uh, my first gig at Woodstock, after I got blasted with Garcia and Hart, and I talk all about that. As soon as I walked in, someone handed me an ounce of decomposing cocaine. Mm -hmm. I saw Mickey and Jerry, and I said, come on to the trailer. So it was Linda, me, and Mickey and Jerry, and we did the whole ounce in about two hours. And we were totally out of our heads. And then I get out, and Michael says to me, here, take the motorcycle, and you got to do me a favor, Crombine. I said, what? He says, well, I never made deals with the farm. I said, you never made deals? He said, yeah, we got these people. So now I'm going around to 35 farmers who had spent generations just to get a 50-acre farm whose crops were destroyed, whose fields were ruined for grazing cattle, right? And I had a, I walked in with a pad and a piece of paper. Some people met me with shotguns at the door. Wow. Ready to blow me away. These were like Italian immigrants that had everything in the world in that farm. And I just wrote out, Mr. Mr. Sorrentino wants $50,000. And on behalf of Woodstock Ventures, I hereby will guarantee that uh, that we owe Mr. Sorrentino $50,000 or 60000 or twenty. So I made deals with all those farmers. So I had to do that because they woke up in the morning and they had 20,000 people on their farm sleeping. And everything was ruined. The flower beds, the vegetables, the uh, everything that was growing was destroyed. So I had to deal with that. And that's why during the movie, it's really weird, except for the beginning, you see Michael. And he paid to have that shot on the motorcycle. Yeah. And he's getting directions <laughs> where to go. And when you see me, I'm so lost in the beauty of what's happening, honestly like anybody in the crowd, yeah. that I'm totally, I wasn't stoned out. I was just so emotional that this thought was now reality. No kidding. You know, and the feeling of Woodstock had taken me over, like anybody in the field. You know, yeah, I had one of the two badges that said producer. Yeah. So, big deal. Yeah. You know, it was it was, it was work, and, and I knew a lot of the acts, so it was important. Some of the acts, like Cocker, that I forced in, mm -hmm. you know, it was it was important to me. You know, so it was like, uh, so when I was interviewed, I was embarrassed because I was so candid and so open. 
in that interview that became sort of famous because when they show the DVD now, that what that interview with me gets a standing ovation. It's really weird. It became like a famous rock history moment. Well, it is. Not in the Rock Hall of Fame. I can't figure it out. Because if you took away Woodstock, I still have the most singles in, in Cashbox history to make the top 100. If you look on my walls, you will notice there isn't one of my 120 platinum albums. There isn't one piece of Woodstock memorabilia because they all went to the T.J. Martell Foundation. Really? For auction. So I don't even have a poster. Have you uh, seen uh, any of the uh, trailers for Taking Woodstock, Ang Lee's? Film? Oh, no. That, that you know, I didn't even read the book. Michael yeah. said, Artie, read it. You'll get a kick out of it. He said, but I'll tell you one thing. He never even interviewed me, and he quotes me all over the place. Really? The only contact I had with Elliot Tiber is he wanted more money for his motel, he didn't bring us Max. He had more money. He wanted more money for the motel. And Michael said, Guff, you will find another place. And he said, okay, I'll take it. And that's the only, he was never on the site. He never had anything to do with Woodstock. So I said, when people ask me in interviews, what do you think about the movie? I said, I, said, I think the title says it all. The taking of the name Woodstock to make money on a movie. Because it's really, people that saw it, it's really the story of what Elliot is. It's nothing about Woodstock in there. So I thought it was, I think it's a ripoff, you know, but I wish Elliot the best, you know. It's like, um, it's it's misleading the public. Was there a highlight for you during that weekend? Um, well, the whole weekend was a highlight. No kidding. The highlight was the act that should have happened, but he wasn't in the movie, was Bert Summer, who I had done three albums with already, because he was incredible, you know. And, and the highlight musically was when... I knew Sly Stone could be trouble because I knew Sly. I knew his manager, Dave Kaepernick, way before Woodstock. And Sly was a pimp and he was a dealer. And that's what he was before he happened. He had just had a riot at Newport that he caused. And uh, I was scared. So I cleared the whole stage out. And Linda and I got caught in the middle of I want to take you higher back and forth between the crowd. And I said, that's as high as anybody could ever get. Being caught with 500,000 people screaming back to going, I want to take you high, and the crowd would go, higher. Yeah. You know, and that was, that was, that was the epitome of feeling the feeling of Woodstock. Hey, what about Hendrix at the end of uh, the festival? Hendrix and I go back to Buddy Miles and him. Buddy was a friend of mine coming over to my apartment before Woodstock on like, I think it was like a Tuesday night and hanging out together. And there's even the story in the book that Jimmy made me promise if anything ever happened to him, I would hire his bodyguard and limousine driver and put him to work. So when Jimmy died, I hired this guy, Gene, Fri Gene Friedel was his name, and I hired him. Yeah. And I actually bought the limousine, and, for, and I supported him till I went broke. And when I went broke, I gave him the limousine and said, Gene, I can't afford to pay anymore, but here's the car, good luck. So I had a long story with Jimmy, and... And that's why I'm in that poster. That's me with the beard standing right next to Jimmy and all the shots of him doing the Star Spangled Banner. That's me standing next to him with the robe over me and the camera in my hand and one shot. And then there's one of me and Jimmy alone. Yeah. And it's on the stage, you know. And I had been sleeping and I got woken up at like six in the morning because I heard Jimmy doing a sound check. So I went running, you know, to catch Jimmy playing. Then two hours later, I was on my way into Wall Street, you know, really? <laughs> to fight off, you know, Michael stayed to clean up the site, and I had to go face Citibank, and, you know, and it's in the book. When I walked in, there was a guy throwing chopped meat, you know, into a piranha tank, and I said, I'm in trouble. 
because I was full of mud wearing the same vest with no shoes and Wall Street had just let out. So I'm walking from the heliport up up towards Citibank and all these guys with attache cases and custom made suits and shirts are walking down. I had them. I had them in my closet, I must admit. Yeah. But there they were walking down the street and there I was looking like I just came from the Bowery and was washing windows. <laughs> And then there was, and then, and you know, then the battle for control after, which was a big, it was a big, it was a big rip off. Yeah, I bet it was ripped off. And Joel and John ripped themselves off. Really? Yeah, it was stupid. We should have just stayed together in peace, you know. But they were so into getting back the million four we were in debt, and I said, the movie's going to make it. And what happened was, Warner said they had to stay neutral, and the whole time we were negotiating. Albert Grossman had put up money too, and Michael and I raised a million dollars. We needed a million four. The whole time they said they had to stay neutral. Warners was negotiating with Joel and John because they knew if Joel and John got control, they would only have to give them a million four. That's all they wanted. Right. You know, if Michael and I got control, we would insist on the original deal, which was Woodstock Ventures and Warners split 50 50. So that decision cost $250 million. And me and Michael being pushed out, of course, Michael and I are $125 million, you know. But that's just part of it, you know. I wasn't supposed to get rich off Woodstock. Yeah. But so I'm known as the guy who kept it alive, especially when I saved the site. I mean, I'm, that's why they call me the father of Woodstock. It's not a name I gave myself, you know. I came to L.A. with every, all my money tied up, and I got a call from the Woodstock Preservation Alliance about Bethel Woods, and I made a statement, and the town council refused to let me be there. So they recorded a statement, and the town council refused to play the statement. So what happened was they put it out on the net. And what happened, they got 75,000 $75, responses saying, please save the field. Don't build on the field. It's going to make you the enemy of the Woodstock Nation. And what happened was my email prevented it. And because of the email, they made that site a, a, a town monument that can never be built on. Beautiful. And that's why I get like 500 pictures a year from people standing at the monument saying, Artie, if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't have been able to stand here for free. You know, but just going to the field, they said, is, is like going to Mecca. Like you mentioned before, it's, uh, it's incredible from a late-night conversation to... Uh, a legendary chapter in the history of rock and roll. Like Time Magazine's quote, because that's the quote. The two greatest events in the history of mankind were the moonshot, and the greatest peaceful event in the history of all mankind is Woodstock. Even on my show, I always say, I didn't do it. You did it. Michael and I built it, told you about it, but you came, and you, you created the vibe of Woodstock. And that's, what, and that's what I really feel, honestly. It's not a humble rap, it's a truth. Woodstock Nation was already there. It was just waiting for a rallying point. 